Who loves to wait? <laughs> I have a, a, a group that helps me with sermon research. Uh, I go to them for input and for wisdom and for insights. Uh, they're also called my grandchildren. So um, <laughs> I reached out to my family and I said, when are times that you don't like to wait? And it was surprising how many of them, uh, the response had something to do with food. Um, the, the line at In-N-Out, um, uh, when their mom is making their uh, favorite Christmas treat and they have to wait in the kitchen for it to be done. Uh, I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree because I have such a problem with impatience. Even if I'm going to hang out at Starbucks, I don't want to wait in line and I use the mobile app so it's waiting for me when I get there. <laughs> How's that for impatience? The, Probably the most surprising thing, some of us that are older will really relate to this, I think, but one of my granddaughters, she's like, I, th- I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how old, but anyway, one of my granddaughters, <laughs> I think she's like 12 or 13, uh, one of my granddaughters, she said what she hates waiting for, now think about this, she's living right now when we are alive, she says one of the things she hates is waiting for the TV to hook up to the internet. Now, most of us who are of a certain age, we remember that squeal of a modem waiting to hook up to get online. You remember what that was like? And my granddaughter, I mean, what's it take? Five seconds for the TV to hook up to the internet? And she suffers from this. Waiting, none of us like waiting. Waiting is part of Advent, the season of Advent. The word Advent means arrival or coming. And throughout the history of the church, these weeks leading up to what we call Christmas, the advent of Jesus, his first advent, throughout history they have been considered a time of waiting, of remembering and reflecting upon the fact that Israel waited on the promise of its Redeemer. We talked about that last week, the seed of the woman that would come and crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the serpent. And so there's a waiting sense. Uh, we reflect back on Israel. We sing the, the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, because they were waiting for Emmanuel to come. But now, in the times in which we live, we know that Emmanuel did come, has come, and he still lives and reigns today. And so we look to his future coming. We are waiting. So in that sense, the season of Advent whether you look at the past, whether you look at the way it's understood throughout Christmas, or whether you look at our lives and the way we live day by day, we are living in anticipation. We are left waiting, waiting for the king to return. And remember what it says about the king's return? When he comes, he will make all things new. What a great day that will be. And so we wait. And we wait, I think, often with a level of impatience, too often, while we're waiting, we fail to worship. Isn't that part of the story of the Old Testament? Over and over again, they had been promised this deliverer, and they were waiting throughout time and throughout history, and they consistently failed to worship. They sought after other gods. They failed to follow the God who had made the promise. They waited, but they found no joy They waited often without faith. They lost their sense of hope. And sometimes we're the same. Somehow, when we wait, we feel like we're being put out. 
like something, some kind of injustice is being done to us, that we're being wronged. I'm not talking now about a coffee order, although perhaps it shows up that way. I'm talking about in life. When we set our eyes, when we set our hearts on on our circumstances, on the ways in which we've been wronged, on our own guilt, our own failures, on disappointments, our expectations in life didn't come to fruition. And we look at the way in which we live and we look at what we have around us and we're waiting. And in waiting, we are disappointed and we are frustrated, perhaps even embittered. Now, let's be really honest about this this morning. Sometimes that can just be selfishness. Sometimes it can just be self-centeredness like your pastor at the coffee shop. But we have to admit that sometimes there are very real losses. There are very real significant betrayals. There are disappointments that crush us in our hearts and emotions. And we're waiting on God's good promises. We're living in faith. We're walking not by sight, because we can't walk by sight right now, but we're walking and living by faith, and yet still our hearts are crushed. How do we wait? How do we wait with a sense of hope, with a sense of joy? Sometimes this waiting and the pain and the impatience and the hurt that is engaged in the waiting, sometimes it's very real. Because make no mistake, there are gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows all around us. What about you today? Believe it or not, as a Jesus follower, waiting should energize our worship. And even as we wait, and while we worship, we should experience a sense of joy in rejoicing. We're going to see that lesson in the Word this morning. So please take your Bibles and turn with me to begin with this morning to Hebrews chapter 11. In a few moments, we're going to go back into the book of Genesis, and we'll end up this morning in the book of Romans. Uh, A little bit unusual today to look at so many different texts, but there's a reason for that. But go with me to Hebrews 11. We're looking at the long waiting of Israel for their Messiah, because that's a template for us this morning. As we saw last week, we're looking at an Old Testament Christmas this year. We're looking at the promises of Christmas from what we call the Old Testament, the Scriptures of Israel. And we saw last week that that original promise was in the garden, where God cursed the serpent and said, one day the seed of the woman is going to crush your head, is going to bruise your head. And so that was a veiled, it was an oblique promise, but it was basically a Christmas promise. But then, if we're really honest about it, there was a long season of waiting, Some scholars, by the way, of Genesis, this is a little off topic, but some scholars believe that as soon as the first child of Adam and Eve was born, they assume this was the deliverer. This was the seed of the woman. They assume, well, the deliverer has come. Well, that wasn't the deliverer. And they waited and waited. And next year, we're going to spend the year going through the book of Genesis, and so we'll look at all of these details. But You finally get to the place after the flood and the judgment of the flood and after the Tower of Babel, you get to the place where God singles out a specific nation and it begins with a man named Abraham. And God made promises to Abraham. And yet, even in Abraham's life, this is where we're going this morning, the promises didn't show up like he thought they would. There was waiting involved. 
There was surely a level of impatience. There had to be all kinds of questions. And the waiting was experienced in the very beginning of the story of Israel's history. The the story is defined by a postponed promise. That's the very nature of what we're going to see in the life of Isaac this morning as we look at the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. So to get an overview of that, let's start here in Hebrews 11. And uh, we'll begin in verse 8. The author of Hebrews gives an overview of the life of the original patriarch, the head of the family of Israel, Abraham. So follow along as I read, and I remind you this morning, this is God's word for us today. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now watch this. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So there was a promise. We're going to see it in the book of Genesis. God said, you're going to have a child. And she had gone decades barren without a child. She had waited for the fulfillment of what most wives are able to expect. And she had not experienced that blessing. And then beyond that, God had made a promise. Yes, it's still going to happen. And there was still waiting involved. Verse 12, therefore, from one man and him as Good as dead. It's one of my favorite phrases in all the Bible. (laughs) Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So there was a fulfillment of the promise. But when? After a long time. The The writer of Hebrews makes a commentary on this, beginning in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, at least many of them, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now watch this, verse 17, the test. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. You get what that means? He was in the act of offering up the one that was finally the fulfillment of the promise. The promise shows up, and then he turns around, and in obedience, he offers them up as an offering. Verse 18, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, a lot of us know these stories. It's possible that some of you, all of this is new to you. You've never really looked at this. But this is the story of a delayed fulfillment of a promise and what it looked like to live waiting could not have been easy for Abraham. 
The great preacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he talks about this. Listen to what he says. He says, the specific promises to Abraham were all based on his having a child. His name, the original name, Abram, meant exalted father. Now, Abram was an Oriental. Furthermore, he was strategically located at the crossroads of the camel caravans, which carried the commerce of the ancient world between Egypt and the north and the east. He was wealthy and no doubt did business with passing travelers. In fact, Scripture calls him a very wealthy man. Dr. Barnhouse suggests that at even time, the merchants would have come to Abram's tent to pay their respects. The questions would have followed a set pattern. How are you? Who are you? How long have you been here? When the trader had introduced himself, Abram would be forced to name himself. Abram, father of many. It must have happened a hundred times, a thousand times. And each time more galling than the time before. Oh, father of many, congratulations. And how many sons do you have? And the answer was so humiliating to Abram. None. And many a time there must have been a half-concealed snort of humor at the incongruity of the name and the fact that there were no children to back up such a name. Abram must have steeled himself for the question and the reply. And he must have waited in impatience. Waiting on the promise of God. But we know the story. We know that God fulfilled the promise. And here's what we're going to see this morning. That the fulfillment of that promise in the birth of a young man named Isaac, the fulfillment of that promise provides for us images or shadows or foreshadows of Jesus Christ. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. Would you look there with me? The 18th chapter of Genesis. And we'll look at several passages here in the middle part of the book of Genesis about these experiences that Abram, Sarah, and Isaac had. As we get into it this morning, I need to acknowledge that if you've done much Bible study, from time to time you've been exposed to the idea, the, the concept of types and antitypes. And the idea that there are, in the Old Testament especially, there are, uh, there are types, and then the antitype is the fulfillment of the types. Now here's what happens with that. Let me just really quickly. In the history of the church, there are people that have gone absolutely hog-wild. That's an old West Virginia phrase. They've gone absolutely hog-wild crazy with types and antitypes. They just allegorize everything in the Bible. Whatever they find in the Old Testament, oh, this means this. This points to this. The opposite response to that, it's an extreme, but the response is you can't talk about anything in the Old Testament signifying anything unless the New Testament says it. Those are two extremes. And this allegorizing of Scripture gets us into a lot of trouble. But I also think this extreme position that says unless the word type is used in the Bible, you can't find any images, that's also a mistake. Because when you look at, for example, the life of Joseph, you find many parallels to the life of Jesus. And especially in the life of Isaac this morning, we find, we're not going to use the word type or anti-type, but we find what are surely foreshadowings, what are hints, what are parallels. Why would we be surprised at this? You know what history is, right? History is his story. It's God's story. 
Why would we be surprised that the God of the universe, I, I'm getting ahead of myself because this is part of what we're going to see in just a moment, but the God of the universe is so omniscient and omnipotent that he is able to orchestrate the events of history in ways that foreshadow what he ultimately will do in the future. And that's what we're going to find here. In what ways does the story of Isaac anticipate the story of Jesus, and what lessons are there for us here? Well, at the very least, there are lessons that give us assurance and confidence in waiting, and believe it or not, you can even find joy. So let's dive into it, all right? Isaac was in many ways a foreshadow of God's rescuer, Messiah. Isaac was in many ways a foreshadow of God's rescuer, Jesus, the Messiah. First of all, both births were foretold. Both births were foretold. Look with me in Genesis 18. I ask you to turn there. Uh, this is the encounter where God and two angels, uh, they're called three men, but it's clear that one of them is God himself, an appearance of God in the Old Testament. They visit Abraham and they, they make a promise. Now look at the context. Let me give you just some of the background. They, they visit Abraham and Sarah. They are old by this time, all right? Look at verse 11. It says, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. And then there's more specificity. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. I think we all understand what that means. Now look what happens. Go back up to verse 10 and look at what God has said. The Lord, in the appearance, one of these angels, it ultimately was God himself. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And then there's the comment by the author of Genesis that they were old. Look at the next verse, verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the pleasure there, it may well have an implication of sexual pleasure, but it's also, make no mistake, it's the pleasure of having children. It's the joy of having children. So look at what happens in verse 13. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And Abraham is not in the tent, so he doesn't know that Sarah's laughed. But God says, why did Sarah laugh? And I'm always wondering if I'm Abraham, I'm saying, I don't know, ask her is what I would, I would say. But then God says this in verse 14. And think about this. In your waiting, is anything too hard for Yahweh? Is anything too hard for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you. And this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And before we go any further, that represents more waiting. You say, yeah, well, it's only a year. <laughs> At their age, that's a long time. It's only a year. More waiting. But both births were foretold. Look at what the Bible says in Isaiah 7, 14 about another birth. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that was centuries before the birth in Bethlehem. So Isaac's birth was foretold, and so was the birth of Jesus. Not just that, but along this line, both births were also supernatural. They were supernatural. Go with me back in Genesis. Go with me over to chapter 21. Look at 21. 
And let's read what we find there in the birth of Isaac. This is a year later. And in Genesis 21, verse 1, it says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Well, that's a great verse. Look at it again. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Pause. You remember what Isaac means? It means laughter. It means joy. Sarah, who had laughed, who had been skeptical of the promise of God, now finds in her old age joy. Skip down to verse 5. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. We've done that this morning, haven't we? I mean, we've chuckled about this incredible miracle that God brought about. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? It was a supernatural birth. God, who is the creator of all things, so affected the worn-out body of Sarah in such a way, and Abraham, who is called as good as dead, God enabled them to conceive a child that was supernatural. But that's not the only supernatural birth this morning. Because you remember what we've already read? Luke chapter 1, you remember just before those events? The angel said to Mary, Luke chapter 1, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Mary said to the angel, How can this be? Since I'm a virgin. You you see the echoes? How can this be because I'm old and worn out, Sarah said. Mary says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Both births were supernatural. Regarding the foretelling and regarding the supernatural birth of Isaac and of Jesus... Let me just say this, while we wait, even today, while we wait, this reminds us that God is God. It reminds us that God is God. This calls into question our view of God and His power. Listen very carefully. Let me be as kind, but also, maybe this won't be kind. Let me be as blunt as I need to be. If your God can't pull off a virgin birth, He's not really God. You've redefined God in such a way that he's no longer God. God who is unlimited in his power. And of course, if you still have skepticism about things like the virgin birth, but you still claim to be a Christian, then you have to ask yourself, if God is unable to pull off a virgin birth, then how is he ever going to pull off a resurrection? This is the question about God being God. You say, well, that's fine because I don't believe in God. Yes, you do. No no one really believes that there is no God. The Bible says God has put eternity in our hearts. Romans 1 says that there's a truth about God's existence that, here it is, no one cannot know. You can deny it, and I believe perhaps maybe you believe that you really don't believe it and deny it, but in your heart of hearts, 
God says it's in every single person who's ever walked the face of the earth, an awareness of the existence of God. And there is here the greatness of God. There is the transcendence of God. The question is not whether God can pull off a virgin birth or a resurrection. The question is, how great is your God? How great is your God? It's been often said, God created us in His image, and since then we've been returning the favor, creating our own sense of God in our image. So I will tell you with no hesitation, I have not one whit of problem believing that the God of the universe is able to reignite the womb of 90-year-old Sarah and bring about the birth of Isaac, and he is just as able to implant a seed in the virgin womb of Mary and bring about a virgin birth, and praise God, he will also resurrect the bodies of our loved ones and our bodies if we indeed die, and we will live with him eternally, because he is God. Now, there are lessons there for us, but we'll get there in a moment. Let me give you a a couple of more similarities between Isaac and Jesus. First, both were submissive to sacrifice. And this is a tough story, I know, but go over to Genesis 22 with me. Look in Genesis 22, and a lot of us are uncomfortable with this story. I think it's intended to make us uncomfortable. But let's just read it. I, I, Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, your unique son is the idea. He had a son, Ishmael, by now, but this was his unique son of promise, the one through whom the promise would proceed, Isaac. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, you see that? The parallels are just astonishing. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. By the way, some scholars believe that Mount Moriah is essentially the hill that we call Calvary. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I am the boy will go over there and worship. And the implication is we will come back again. Now, wait a minute. He's told to go off for his son. But he has some kind of implicit confidence that he and his son will return. How do we understand that? Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Do you see the parallels? He laid the wood of the offering on his son Isaac, and he took his hand in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And here's one of the most astonishing verses in the Bible, verse 7. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? 
And look at Abram's faith. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. Like Jesus, Isaac was submissive to sacrifice. He was not an infant. He was not a toddler. He was not like Padraig who lit our candles this morning. He was undoubtedly by now at least a teenager, if not a young adult. He could have easily bolted, yet he submitted himself to sacrifice. It reminds us of someone else, doesn't it? What Peter said when he preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Remember, he said, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was the Father's plan. The sacrifice was planned by the Father. You say, well, wait a minute. How can those that enacted it be guilty? And it's because this is the nature of God's sovereign control. He doesn't violate our own choices, and yet He is nevertheless in control. And His plan in this circumstance was that His own Son bear His wrath for our sins. Both Isaac and Jesus were submissive to sacrifice. And let me just flesh that out a little more, because they were both also, they, would, they were submissive to their fathers. Look at the next verse in Genesis 22, verse 9. When they had come to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. How many of our children would be that submissive? And that's not a condemnation of our children. It's an acknowledgement of the, the wonder of this and the fact that it foreshadows and reflects another one who was willing. You remember when he prayed in Luke chapter 22, the night of his betrayal before his crucifixion? In Luke 22, we read Jesus prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Both sons were submissive to fathers. And there's a lesson here for us. Because while we wait, this reminds us that though God is God, we are not. God is God. We are not. I probably wouldn't have this story in the Bible word up to me. As a father and a grandfather, I can't comprehend this story, and yet God is God and I am not. We, we have to examine here our understanding of God's working and His purposes. In other words, we have to understand the nature of our faith. We have to recognize our view of God and the godness of His plan, both the goodness of His plan, but also the godness of His plan. And when we say we don't understand, it's as though from heaven, God nods His head and says, right. I don't say that flippantly. Because some of you are heartbroken this morning. And some of you think about aspects of your life where it appears the way God's plan is outworking. Once again, it's soul-crushing to you. 
But God is still God, and we are not. And what I find here in both the life of Isaac, but especially in the life of Jesus, is that submission and obedience come easier when we remember God's plan and when we remember God's purposes are at work, when we have confidence that God is truly God, that we are not, that He has His purpose, He has His plan, He is at work. And His purpose and plans and ways are often unseen, they are purposeful, and over time they will accomplish in our circumstances, what he wants to accomplish. Listen, I've had to acknowledge that God is not consulting me regarding the specifics of his plan. He doesn't come to me about my schedule. In accomplishing what he wants to accomplish in my life, in my family, in my ministry, he's accomplishing what he chooses to accomplish. And I have all kinds of advice for him. And I guess we should literally say, thank God he doesn't listen. He doesn't consult me about his schedule. He doesn't consult me about specifics. He doesn't consult me about the means that he chooses to his ends because they are his ends from beginning to end. And there is, there is something, folks, if we can remember this in our waiting there's something that's magnificently freeing about this. You say, well, how can I know? It's so painful. How can I know? And the way we know, according to Romans 8 especially, is God has shown His faithfulness and proven His faithfulness on the cross. And we go back to the cross and we see, if this is the depth of God's commitment to me and my good and His glory, then I can trust Him day by day. We are not God. God is God, and we are not. Let me give you two more examples of the way Isaac foreshadows the Messiah, Jesus. Both their lives pointed to substitution. If you don't know the story, just as Abraham was taking the knife to slay his son to offer him on an altar, God stopped him. And we find the culmination of it in verse 13 of Genesis 22, where it says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And once again, what was it? God provided the sacrifice. And this is the principle of substitution. Both these stories, the story of Isaac and the life of Jesus and what he accomplished for us, it represents substitution. Think about the life of Jesus. Think about what John the baptizer, his cousin, said in John 1, where he sees Jesus. The next day, John the baptizer saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world, John chapter 1. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And how does he do that? Well, we know that. In, in John chapter 15, Jesus, his words to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Paul, talking to the Galatians in Galatians 2, says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Substitution. And Peter spells it out 
with absolute clarity in 1 Peter chapter 2, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Substitution. Isaac's life was saved by a substitute. Our souls are saved by a substitute. By Jesus who takes our place. It's not just that. Very quickly, one more. Both Isaac and Jesus, both their lives pointed to resurrection. They pointed to resurrection. In the book of Hebrews, that same text, you remember we read it? Abraham considered that God was able to even raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. It's as though Isaac was as good as dead. He was on the altar. Abraham was going to obey, and God stayed his hand. And there's a sense in which that's resurrection. And Abraham believed, evidently he believed, that God would give him, even if he obeyed, if he did this terrible deed, that God would provide his son back to him. Remember, he told the men, stay here and we'll come back. We'll go worship, we'll come back. Well, I don't need to talk to you much about Jesus' commitment and experience of resurrection, do I? Matthew 28, verse 5, The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Both of these similarities, they point and invoke they point to and invoke our view of God and His salvation. Listen, while we wait, all of this reminds us that we need grace. We need grace. And we need the hope that comes from grace. We need, we need the grace that removes our guilt, the, the kindness of God that through Jesus removes our guilt, but we also need this assurance of the future that Jesus was victorious over the death the human death that he experienced on the cross, that he was able to conquer death. And this is hope for the future. So substitution and resurrection, they are core elements of the gospel itself. We've just worked through 1 Corinthians. Remember what chapter 15 tells us? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, that Christ died for our sins. There it is, substitution. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. There's resurrection, according to the scriptures. Substitution. And listen, from the garden, from that original promise, in fact, some scholars believe that the fact that in the garden, God killed the animals and clothed Adam and Eve, it's the first representation of, sac of substitution. That Something, a creature, had to lose its life that they might be covered. And then you have the worship at the altars and the life of the animals and the blood that was shed. And then you end up with the tabernacle that God gave and then the temple. And all of it has this process of, of the guilt of the people of Israel, yet that guilt is atoned for and covered by a substitute. And all of this culminates on the cross of Jesus. Substitution. But if that's all we had, if that's all we had, if Easter weekend ended at Good Friday, 
If there were no resurrection, we would just have a nice story. Maybe some hope that our guilt was removed, but what good would that do us for the future? There's also resurrection. And the resurrection is about making all things new. The resurrection is the, is the reason Jesus, this is the reason Jesus' resurrection is called first fruits, because he's not done. He'll raise us, and he'll also remake and redo this cursed and broken world. Listen carefully. Every failure, every sin, every injustice, every broken heart cries out for Eden. Why can't it be the way it was in the beginning? And God says, essentially, if you'll allow me, God says, just wait. Just wait. Look at the substitute of your Savior and look at the fact that He conquered death and resurrection and just wait. Believe. Live in faith. Walk not by sight, but by faith. Believe. And wait and worship with joy. Because one day there will be this earth remade in the most glorious way. In such a way, I believe, that Eden will pale in comparison. That we'll read Genesis 1 and 2 and we'll say, how much better is what we have here? What joy that will be. Sarah laughed. But she named Isaac Laughter. One who rejoices. And once more, the author of Hebrews, if you go to the 12th chapter, you can see it there. It says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy set before him. So Isaac, but even more so Jesus, they point to a whole and a full salvation. That God knows your sin and yet he is pleased and willing to forgive that sin because one has substituted himself in your place. And that should bring you great joy. And the fact that he has conquered death and resurrection means that our greatest enemy, which is death, which some of our people are facing right now, that that great enemy has no ultimate power. And there is therefore joy. Are there mockers about this? Well, sure there are. And that's what the Bible says. 2 Peter 3 says this, knowing that first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. I just love that. That's what scoffers do. <laughs> scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? And sometimes we ask that question, perhaps not with scoffing, but in our pain and our doubts, maybe sometimes in our selfishness. We say, where's the promise of his coming? This hurts. This is going on too long. My prayers aren't answered the way I hoped they would be. We, we wait, we wait. Where's the joy? One more, and with this I close. Take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 5 for just a moment. Romans chapter 5. This is a summary of everything we've been saying 
Romans chapter 5, follow along with verse 1. Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's the only way you can be justified. Just to give you a gospel truth this morning. If you're trying to be justified by being a good person, you're lost. And that's not just your ignorance, that's your pride. That's the great sin of pride, that you will justify yourself. We are justified through faith by casting ourselves on the mercy of the court in humility and repentance. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And if you stop right there, it's like everything is perfect, and there are no more problems, and no more fears, and no more troubles. But you can't stop there. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now watch this. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We rejoice while we wait. And we go through suffering, and that suffering brings about endurance, and endurance brings character, and character brings hope. We wait, but we wait in hope, and we wait in faith, and we worship as we wait, and we believe, even though this world around us, and even though in our own hearts we see so much brokenness and disobedience, we believe that there are tidings of comfort and joy. Amen? Comfort and joy. In many ways, we're still waiting. But while we wait, we worship. Your takeaway today, in the waiting, we find joy when we worship. That's what Advent is all about. Father, speak to our hearts today. Some of us come with hearts filled with joy at your goodness and your blessings. Some of us are here brokenhearted today because of the trials that we find ourselves in. And Lord, some of us are here with a cold heart because we have wandered, made willful and selfish choices. Lord, whatever the circumstance, we, you know far better than we. And so we would ask that the Holy Spirit would do an empowering, a restoring, a, perhaps if they're lost here, it would do a regenerating work this morning. We see evidences of the great promise of the Messiah in the life of Isaac. And we thank you that we don't have to look forward with questions about Messiah because now we are able to look back upon the coming of Messiah, his perfect life, his glorious substitutionary death, and then his victorious victory over death and resurrection. And for these things, we give you thanks. And now we continue to wait, and we wait until that time in which you will make all things new. And as we wait, may we wait with joy while we worship. In this glorious name of Jesus, we pray. In the great mystery of all that he is, 
in the way that he has come. What a glorious mystery to make us right with the Father. In his name we pray. Amen.